1: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
2: Audie Cornish, it is such a pleasure to see you. I am a huge fan. I was, before you came over to CNN, to do your thing. And And
1: I am a fan of your pod and how you've approached it. I have found the world of uh kind of people from the political class who are doing these kind of insider podcasts actually be quite informative and quite helpful i've listened to this and others and um i really enjoy it
2: well let's talk about yours the assignment and one thing i want to ask you i watch these promos for your (laughs) podcast and i see you with your uh, stickies uh color-coded stickies. And I want to know, first of all, is that real or was that just for dramatic effect? And if so, is that how you figure out what shows you want to do?
1: First of all, I couldn't believe that the podcast was getting a commercial. I feel like that was like the first ever podcast commercial. So I took it's, it really it's wor- seriously. Worthy of a it's worthy
2: of a commercial. <laughs> um,
1: let me see. In 30 seconds or less, I'll say that what I wanted to do was to teach people how to listen because it wasn't going to be a TV show. You were telling people watching TV that they had to go somewhere else and listen to something else, and why would they do that? As, and and pods—they're idea-driven. We're idea-driven. Yeah. That's our work. And in my office back at NPR, I did in fact have a lot of post-its everywhere, and it was a running joke about all these colored post-its. I had them in the books I had to read weekly, uh-huh. and if I just had an idea that I was like, I need to remember this, it would go on the post-it. And um, I remember when the ad team wanted to talk about the commercial, they're like, "Yeah, so we'll have a scene." where you're investigating, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mm, I have a thing with post-its. <laughs> and God love them. They did it. They did it. And and it really is uh, distilling the show down to its essence.
2: Yeah, well, I want to talk about that. How uh, I want to talk about the specific podcast we're going to air on our feed, mm-hmm. uh, which has to do with what's going actually going on in the world. What it has to do with is how this Dobbs decision is actually playing out in the lives of uh, women across the country, the people who are defending them against legal proceedings and so on. But my question is, how do you decide what to do? And how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do?
1: Number one, when I think of the ideal guest for a show, it has to be somebody who is, you know, very close to the center of something, um, who has a shareable experience, and who can illuminate a specific angle of the story. That, that's how I think and of
2: that's it. And that's the assignment. They, they, these are people who are out there doing things. It's a double entendre, of course, because you create an assignment for yourself. Yeah. Uh, and for your listeners every week. Well,
1: these are all the assignments my editors would never say yes to. I turn yeah. them into a show, <laughs> yeah. basically.
2: What, what, a, what a great position to be in.
1: It is. And it's exciting. You know, what I'll say, and you've probably experienced this, there are so many stories that fall between beats Of a newsroom where it's sort of like, you know, this was a good example. If if the story breaks about um, the Dobbs decision, the story of the day is the decision. And then the story of the day is the Supreme Court. And then the story Mm -hmm. of the day is uh, politicians fighting about it. And somehow the story of the day never ends up being. Hey what happens when this goes into effect what does it actually look like And so I'm kind of assigning myself these things whether they're like astrologers you know or or dab or people who are you know defending um uh people against pregnancy related crimes what it has in common is like this thing just ends up getting shoved a little farther away because we're so preoccupied with politics
2: Yeah no you're so right you know uh uh Gary Hart, who you know ran for president in the in the eighties, told me back then when uh, I may have been out of the media by then, bad of journalism, but he said to me, "Just remember one thing: Washington's always the last to get the news." And it was maybe one of the wisest things he ever mm-hmm. told me. And the thing that I love about your podcast is you're you're going way beyond what people get as a daily diet, and you're getting down to the grassroots of of things and sharing stories of people who are actually living. Yeah. uh, And
1: it feels like such a trite phrase, like when people ask me about the show and I'm like, well, we talk to real people about, you know, the people behind the headlines. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, sure. So because like news outlets are always saying that that's what they do. Like they're yeah. always saying that. But the reality of who you're seeing on air all the time, etc. is not that. And I think the explosion of TikTok, social media um, has shown us that we are interested in each other. We are mm-hmm. we are experts in each of our worlds in our subject matter. And it was it's a little bit like deciding like, oh, I'm going to make fresh air, but for real people, you know, for like for yeah. someone who is not deemed an expert, but actually is an expert. And that's been the most exciting part.
2: Yeah. Well, you, you you have two on this podcast, two uh, very, very uh, passionate and uh, eloquent uh, women who are out there trying to defend other women and and other actors mm-hmm. who are— uh, you, what, what did you call it? Pregnancy-related crimes?
1: Pregnancy-related crimes, which I know sounds yeah. like a no, nutty it's, term. it's a
2: jarring term. Yeah, but yeah. Yes.
1: But the idea is that uh, when um, abortion rights were— you know, uh, ruled as unconstitutional, it wasn't that all of a sudden anyone who might get an abortion just like went to jail. That's not how it worked. The way it worked is if you were, what we're learning now is that if you have violated some other kind of crime, you might have a prosecutor who can say, oh, also fetal personhood says you've harmed a minor and so all of a sudden your pregnancy can be criminalized in a variety of ways if people do not feel you have acted appropriately in one way or another and that may be drug use that may be you know driving recklessly that may be a number of things yeah. um and that was like blew my mind
2: speaking of blowing your mind i learned a lot uh listening to your your conversation with these two two uh lawyers how often in the course of your podcast Are you surprised? How often do you learn things that, I know you must research them extensively, but...
1: Yeah, no, we come to the show in a place of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And the work for me actually means pushing people off their talking points. We could have easily had this conversation with these women, which would sound like every conversation you have ever heard with an advocate from, say, Planned Parenthood. Right. You know, and but that's not the point of the show. The show is actually saying, no, 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 tell me about your day-to-day experience Mm -hmm. in this maelstrom. Like, Mm -hmm. quite literally, what is it like? Share that with us. Let us be inside your head. And it takes a while, you know. It takes a while, actually, to people have a good sense at this point what they think the media wants to hear and what they think they should share to put themselves in the best light. And I try and make the show a safe place for people to be like, no, 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 just tell us what your life is like. We want to share
2: one thing I loved is that uh, you also allowed them a chance these, these, these women worked in separate places, and yeah uh, and you offered them the chance to ask them the, each other questions, and they were sh- you, know, you got them sharing their own experiences with each other.:
1: Yeah, We do that every show. It's the best part about it.:
2: Yeah. There is an authenticity to these conversations that is, uh, as you say, quite different. Than what people have become accustomed to, and that is a probably a, a freedom that podcasting has given you.
1: I mean, and you, right? Like, I yeah, think one 100%. of the things, one of the things that's so fascinating is all podcasts to some extent they're a little AM radio-ish, in that you often feel like you're in someone else's world. You know, like you're in bluegrass world. You're in (laughs) a 70s rock world. And and with podcasts, it's the same thing. You're in Joe Rogan's world. You're in Anderson's grief. Right. Yes. And you're also in hacks on tap. Like you're having Mm -hmm. beers in a political discussion with like the guy, you know, of one of Mm -hmm. the most consequential campaigns of our time. It. I realized as a journalist, I could no longer determine that I was the gatekeeper of which conversation was important and how it should sound. And so basically what I'm trying to do is bring us all inside, you know, yeah. to just like help people enter these spaces that they might be nervous to or they might think is not for them.
2: Well, you, you do that. And you do that week after week. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I hope to do with the Axe Files is to, I always say to myself, my one goal is to make sure that people understand who I'm speaking with Mm -hmm. better when they leave the podcast than when they enter. Yes. Uh, You know, I don't want talking points. I don't want all of that. I I want to know who people are.
1: And it works because it's you. Like, I couldn't do the Axe Files. Do you know what I'm saying? And I think acknowledging that, that, like, you are able to talk to people within that world in a way that the rest of us can't we're just not going to get the same answers and what I try and do the assignment is like give that same experience to people like whether they're flight attendants or you know only fans workers whatever is to say that like you can be also treated with that same kind of deference and understanding and space and um, it's so awesome like I'm having so much fun doing the show and working with you and Anderson and everyone it just feels like it's a it's a different kind of energy than what I was doing before
2: well I am Honored that you will be filling our feed. Uh, I'm on assignment in this coming week, and the assignment is to go away with my family. And uh, for us,
1: that's an actual like you have to put it in the calendar
2: <laughs> exactly. to make
1: that happen. <laughs> exactly. But
2: I got three little grandkids, and uh, we're all going to be together. And I'm so excited about that, but also excited that the folks who listen to the Axe Files have a chance to listen to your podcast and uh, i think once folks once you listen to it you're going to want to go back again and again and again so audie thank you i uh, am proud to be in your legion of fans and listeners and we're going to get you on the axe files oh
1: yes everyone send in your assignments for david and audie (laughs) we want to hear from you especially going into this crazy election season
2: so we'll be talking soon
1: definitely thank you
2: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
3: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? take a deep breath and turn on crooked media's what a day podcast in just 20 short minutes what a day hosted by me Juanita Tolliver and my co-host Bell Anderson Josie Duffy Rice and Priyanka Arabindi breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry and the best part is we do it every day so start your day off right with what a day available wherever you get your podcasts make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode
2: And now, back to the show.
1: Okay, before we start, you should know that we're going to be talking about stories with descriptions of pregnancy loss. It might not be appropriate for all audiences, so take care while listening. The other day, I was on a panel discussing a CNN Republican presidential candidate town hall. Audie. As we go into this, uh, this, this event... No, not that one. What's the most critical thing that you think has to happen for Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley is the only Republican woman in the presidential race, at least for now. And that night, I heard some nuance in her answer on abortion rights that surprised me.
0: And I think we can all come together and say any woman that has an abortion shouldn't be jailed or, or, or given the death penalty. Can't we start there?
1: No other candidate has really talked about this bit of it. That with the Supreme Court's historic decision to end Roe v. Wade last year, some state bans on abortion further opened the door to criminalization for people who provide abortions and for people who need them.
4: If you are pregnant and you do something that allegedly... Exposes your fetus or your pregnancy to some harm or some risk of harm, you can be charged with a crime. That could be driving without a seatbelt while pregnant. That could be falling down a flight of stairs while pregnant. That could be drinking wine or um, using medical marijuana. So, on this episode, we wanted to find out what's
1: happening to people caught up in that web of changing laws. Who are the lawyers defending them? What keeps them up at night? And now that the highest court in the land has ruled that abortion is not constitutionally protected, what's the focus of the next round of legislative fights? I'm Audie Cornish. This is the assignment. It's been one year since the Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization.
4: It came down on June 24th, which was my daughter's um, preschool graduation ceremony.
1: That's Dana Sussman, mother to a bona fide preschool alumna and acting executive director of Pregnancy Justice. It's an organization that defends people who are facing criminal charges for their pregnancy outcomes—births, miscarriages, stillbirths, and, yeah, abortions.
4: So we read the decision. We all huddled together via Zoom. There was a lot of tears— I personally completely broke down in front of my entire staff. I then had to pick up the pieces and go to my daughter's preschool graduation where we and many of the other parents, we were all sort of um, taking this in together and all very emotional together. To understand what picking up
1: and taking it in looks like a year post-ops, we also brought in Amanda Allen. She's senior counsel and director at The Lawyering Project. They represent abortion providers and supporters, people like doctors, nurses, women's health
0: clinics, and abortion funds. So much of my life has been holding, virtually or in real life, clients' hands and walking them through, here are the protections that the law offers you still, post-Dobbs. Here are the risks you face for the, the types of things you want to do. It's a lot of client counseling. It's a lot of advising.
1: There were some issues that we really thought were going to be a big deal, right? The newspaper, especially, and I think young feminist publications were like, "Stock up on Plan B, and uh, shut down your pregnancy apps." Like, there was this whole. Can you talk about some of the things you remember hearing that just like haven't really panned out?
4: I can't tell you how many media inquiries we got around period tracking apps. It really caught fire, and I think it— Amanda
1: actually laughing
4: there, like that's— Sure, eliminate your period tracking app, but that doesn't change the fact that our phones surveil us in a thousand different ways. So we're really not moving the needle all that much. Truthfully, though, the ways in which people are surveilled in any criminal case— would apply in the context of a pregnancy-related charge. So we're talking about text messages with friends, Facebook messages, uh, DMs, things like that, online purchases. These are things that are used when whenever someone is being investigated for a crime. And I think it's important for people to understand that digital privacy is sort of a misnomer. It's yeah. the reality of the world we live in.
1: So you're saying it's it's not unheard of, but that doesn't sound like... That's how people are getting caught. Right. Or it's not sound like it sounds like that's not how law enforcement is getting tipped off. Is that
4: correct? That's correct. And the way they're getting tipped off is unfortunately through healthcare providers and child welfare workers. The most typical sort of chain of events. Is someone experiences a medical emergency, um, they're experiencing pregnancy loss, they call 911 or they go to the hospital, or they're in labor and and they're going to the hospital to deliver, they may test positive for a substance, they may experience a pregnancy loss, and I'm using air quotes, under suspicious circumstances, and then there might be a child welfare call by a hospital social worker or a nurse, or the police may be called right um, directly by the by the healthcare providers or the healthcare institution. That's the most common way in which a case that we work on starts. It's a report by another
0: human being. Amanda Allen, for you, how do cases start? Well, I was just going to add to what Dana said quickly. The The other way is, at least anecdotally, through abusive partners, right? We have that case. There's a case in Texas where an ex-husband got a hold of his, his ex-wife's text messages with her friends, and they were discussing helping her get medication, abortion, drugs. And then the ex sued her friends for wrongful death. And so I think that's that's another path to the legal system. For the Lawyering Project, our cases really come from our, our existing client base. So
1: meaning all the clinics and providers who are like, we need to keep these guys close to help us, are the ones who are calling you, and is it because they're concerned about being shut down? Is it because they're concerned a phone call will be made about them? Like, what are their actual worries?
0: Yeah, their their worries really run the gamut. From yeah, like we we we've just got a letter that we're going to have an emergency inspection next week, and we're worried that the the state is going to use that inspection um, to to try to shut us down, to try to yank our license. Um, there can be things like that. There can also be, hey, this bill is moving, and if it passes, it's really great going to cut off access for, you know, this whatever state it is that's that is still able to provide care. Um, could we challenge this law? And if so, what would that look like? Um, and so, you know, the a lot of the calls that we get are um and start with advice, like how do how would we comply with this law, or um, what do we do about this threat that we just received? Um, and then some of those do end up turning into cases because we we can find a way to challenge that law that passed or that action that was taken against them.
1: Do you guys have any questions for each other?
4: Amanda, I I hate to ask this because I think it's a stressful question, but I get it a lot, so I'm really curious what how you would answer this, which is like, what keeps you up at night?
0: I think the um, FDA, the case against the FDA right now and all of the um, threats against medication abortion specifically keep me up at night.
1: And can you explain just a little bit about that case?
0: Yeah, that's the case that a group of anti-abortion advocates brought against the Food and Drug Administration, um, alleging that the FDA improperly approved mifepristone, which is the first drug used in a medication abortion, and also the gold standard for miscarriage management. I should I should highlight. Um, they're alleging that the FDA should have never approved it and didn't follow you know standard practices. All of that is is completely um, you know completely not based in reality. Completely. Um, well, all
1: of that is now being the subject of legal. Question and wrangling.
0: Exactly. And because they filed in um, a district court in Texas where they knew they would have a friendly judge, and then um, that case got appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which is sort of notoriously known for for its conservative and anti-abortion views, um, you know, this group knew that they had a pretty good shot at at least, um, you know— creating the kind of chaos that, that we've seen since Dobbs. Um, and so while Myth is still available just like it was, you know, months and years ago, that case is going through the court system right now with the the chance of ultimately being before the, the Supreme Court, I would say, within the next year or so. Stripping everyone in this country of access to that drug um, would be catastrophic. And it is something that a few years ago we wouldn't have dreamed of talking about. But the federal courts in particular are, are really just a hostile, hostile place to be right now. Dana, what g- keeps you up at night? Such, this is such a positive um, conversation. But
4: I would say it's um, a prosecutor in a state that where we are not focusing our attention at the moment because we have limited resources and we're small, um, wakes up tomorrow and decides to utilize their state's um, fetal personhood law to convert— all of their criminal laws into laws that could criminalize pregnancy, meaning that a fetus or a fertilized egg or embryo has essentially, theoretically, co-equal rights with everyone else. And of course, in the context of pregnancy, that just is impossible. If you are pregnant and your fetus has the same rights as you, what that ultimately means is that you have less rights. Um, But we have seen prosecutors in states like Alabama and Oklahoma and um, South Carolina and Ohio use criminal laws in really problematic and unlawful ways.
1: But it's interesting that you're thinking of, like, in this entire chain of criminalization— Law enforcement, etc. You're you're thinking about prosecutors yes. in particular, and you both were kind of nodding about that. Can you talk about how significant that is? Because in many places, obviously, this is like an elected position. Um, they have a lot of discretion. Like, what kind of effect are, is the prosecutorial community kind of having on your lives?
4: It is everything. It is the ball game in some in our work. Um, it's interesting because I got asked a question about, you know, state hotspots. And I was like, it's not about a state, it's about a county. You can go to a single state, and in one county there might be 10 pregnant women in jail or postpartum people in jail in any given moment. You go to the neighboring county, that prosecutor is not bringing these charges. The amount of discretion that prosecutors have is quite remarkable. When you actually get to speak to a prosecutor, what kind of questions
1: do they have for you, Right. And and what are you trying to say to them? Like, you're not in court. You're just like, hey, this is what we're thinking.
4: Well, it really depends on the prosecutor. So we have conversations with prosecutors who are actively bringing these cases. And the conversation we have with them is, if you really care about babies, if you really care about unborn life, and theoretically, the baby once it's born, criminalizing pregnancy and pregnant people harms babies. And they say to you, what? Um, thank you. We'll take it under advisement. Um, you know, I you know, we we have had some success in um ensuring that prosecutors know that we will put up a really, really lengthy and time consuming and resourced fight. Um, and that is not something that maybe they were expecting. A lot of our cases make assumptions that something a pregnant person does or doesn't do during their pregnancy can impact a pregnancy outcome and in meaning drugs, right? yeah it could be substance use it could be or alcohol even alcohol I guess. it could be you know not following your doctor's orders around bed rest. it could be being in a dangerous quote unquote dangerous situation while pregnant um but for the most part, Much larger systemic factors impact pregnancy outcomes, and very little that an individual does or doesn't do during pregnancy um, can actually have, you know, cause a pregnancy loss, for example. So it can be— So you've got to undermine the very concept of
1: this is endangering a person. Right,
4: or causation for that matter. It's going to be very hard for a prosecutor to establish that this— Thing that this person did caused their pregnancy loss.
1: What I hear you saying, though, is that more prosecutors are willing to try.
4: Yes. Oh, for sure. And the way our criminal legal system works assumes that um, most people will not have the resources to put up a defense that would push back on these assumptions, that would bring in other experts. Um, the churn of the criminal legal system is such that people are so terrified, especially people who are you know, maybe just had a baby, maybe just experienced a tragic pregnancy loss, they will plead to something so that this is over and they can get reunited with their family more, more quickly and recover more quickly. They are—so we are dealing with an under-resourced public defense system, um, court-appointed counsel, and so prosecutors are able to bring these cases without a lot of attention or accountability, and we try to slow that down and bring that attention and accountability.
1: Amanda, listening to Dana talk, what do you hear that mirrors your experience with prosecutors?
0: Yeah, in a very literal way, mostly with impact litigation, which which the lawyering project does, we sue prosecutors, right? So they're defendants in our cases. Um a lot of times it's the attorney general of a state because they're essentially, you know, considered the the main, you know, the the head of of you know enforcing the state's criminal laws. Um and so in that sense, you know, that's kind of our most direct um relationship with with prosecutors and, and enforcement actors um is, is really, you know. Showing up in court and saying, "If you enforce this, you know this this is an unconstitutional criminal law that you are charged with enforcing, and we're asking a court to tell you not to. What are they arguing back? Well, it depends on the state, and it depends on really the the political and uh, and sort of, you know the the overall climate of the state. So, for example, we have a case right now in Indiana State Court, um, which we, in which we challenged the total abortion ban the legislature there passed shortly after Dobbs. Um, and the, the defendants in that state are, are all, um, in, you know, Indiana state officials, uh, the governor, you know, anyone charged with enforcing that ban. Um, and our argument is that the Indiana Constitution provides a separate basis for a right to abortion. And their argument is, no, it doesn't. So far, the Indiana Supreme Court has at least agreed with us to the extent that it will block that law from taking effect while the case proceeds.
1: But it sounds like, um, Dana, you deal with that kind of local county prosecutor um, and your client. And then when Amanda comes to town, that's when things have really escalated.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's different tactics. It's—
1: Like now the state is embroiled in something.
4: Yes, yes. And I think the difference, too, is um, state legislatures are passing abortion bans and abortion restrictions left and right. And Amanda and lawyers who work from that position are coming in to enjoin those laws, to prevent those laws from going into effect. We are working with a different set of laws um, where prosecutors are— Essentially with using their own power and in many cases abusing their own power to enforce different types of laws that have existed for a long time um, and expand them into places surrounding pregnancy and abortion. Um, But I think what's very similar among these, um, you know, that that I see in our work is this idea that you can legislate around care and you and and you can prosecute around care. And that is just the lines are too gray and pregnancy is quite complicated.
1: In- in- incredibly, I thought that the Dobbs decision was supposed to simplify things, right? This is what you, this is the argument. Send this back to the states. They'll make the decision. Right.
0: This is Amanda, and this is my biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves was this idea that somehow sending this issue back to the states was going to, yeah, make things simpler, make things, it's just whatever the voters essentially get to decide. And what we were all saying was this is going to create mayhem because they are going to be 50 different states with 50 different laws and no sort of federalized constitutional standard. And the, you know, what we were most afraid of happening um, has come to pass and and probably even worse because we've got patients who are traveling hundreds of miles to get care. They're deciding whether to um, pay their light bill or you know, use that money for their abortion and their travel, right? And we're seeing doctors who are so afraid of being prosecuted, even in, in in cases where the the abortion would clearly fall under an exception. The the fetus had absolutely no chance of surviving. The patient was literally bleeding out, near sepsis, and we're seeing those doctors so afraid because of the the criminal penalties associated with with that abortion ban, that those patients are, are, again, traveling hundreds of miles, leaving the state. We'll be back in a moment.
1: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Dana, for you, is there a client story that you're working on now or that kind of sticks with you in the post-Dobbs era?
4: Sure. Um, I'm working on a case right now in coalition with a couple other organizations where a young person is facing criminal charges for experiencing a preterm birth at home. She Brings the baby. The baby is born. She brings the baby. The baby is alive. They try their best to provide the best care that they can at this local hospital, which does not have a sophisticated uh, NICU, um, and the baby does not survive. And this was in what trimester? Um, This was, well, in the second trimester.
1: So the hospital that she went to for care and support. Please help me. I am holding. Exactly. Like, I'm coming to you, right, with my hands Full of pain, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the hospital alerts her. She's charged. When she's charged, what happens after the hospital alerts the police. Do the police show up at the hospital? Like, what actually happened?
4: So typically, yes, the police will show up in the hospital. They'll question the individual. But what happened in this in case? This, I don't have the exact timeline. Okay. We're supporting the public defender who, it's okay, a, you great. know, we always partner with a public defend local uh, criminal defense attorney or public defender. So she was charged with what again? Um, she was originally charged with third-degree murder and child endangerment, and she was held in jail with no bail. So she couldn't, even if she wanted to, pay bail to get released. Um, early in her in a pretrial hearing, we were able to get her out, and we were able to get the third-degree murder charge dropped. So she's still facing a child endangerment charge. And where is this? I don't want to share. It's not yet public. Um, like, is it in a state where there's a ban? No. No.
1: That's wild, because I think we make an assumption that people are, quote-unquote, safe from this kind of enforcement if they're in a state where abortion rights remain.
0: I think that goes back to what Dana was saying about it's not about the state, it's about the county. Yep, yep. And I will say this
4: is in a more conservative part of a state that you wouldn't suspect as a state that we would need to pay a lot of attention to on these cases. But again, it's it's the county and the individual prosecutor and the choices that they're making.
1: When the conversation was happening, it's like people in Handmaid's Tale's costumes— Everyone's going to jail. It was just very apocalyptic. But realistically, how are you feeling about where you are right now?
0: What does give me hope is that I'm seeing so many signs, sign after sign after sign, that voters are pissed about this, right? Right. Um, you saw, we saw in Kansas last year, voters resoundingly rejected a constitutional amendment that would have said that the Constitution doesn't protect abortion rights. Right? Um, that is that was a, an unexpected, uh, you know, a wide, wide margin victory there. Right? We saw the same the same thing in Michigan. The question is really around how do we um, mobilize enough to get that message out in the next election cycle?
1: Does that mean that? More people have to hear about these cases that Dana has. Like, do actually do people care if
4: they hear that somebody was arrested for a fetal personhood crime? I think they do. I think they do more and more. And I, I think that one of the things that gives me hope too is that people are making these connections. They get it. They're they're really starting to understand how how this work and how this system is connected and how when we eliminate the right to abortion, it's actually about more than abortion. And it's about all of our reproductive decisions. And um, that could include IVF. That could include um, getting miscarriage care. That could include going on to have a healthy baby. Um, And we need to work across those issue areas and connect it to, to, to broader themes. And I think that people are starting to really understand that. And they're outraged. And people are more and more outraged about the kinds of cases that we take on as well.
1: I want to offer you guys one more chance to talk to each other because there's things that I don't know to ask about that you know to ask each other.
0: Dina, how do you talk to your children about your work? We both have small children.
4: Well, because of Zoom land, my six-year-old has overheard me talk about work in ways that I wish I had been able to talk to him first. Um, Mm. But we did have a career day at school, and I was— frankly, too flummoxed to figure out a way to explain what I do to six-year-olds. But um, So what's he heard? So um, unfortunately, he heard that um, in one of our cases in California, um, uh, a mother experienced a neonatal death, and um, so the baby died. And I said to a reporter that her baby died, and my son was on the couch, and he did not know that babies could die. Um, And so we had to have a conversation about that, and it felt really, really, really awful. And you know that I wish he hadn't been there for that conversation, to be honest. Um, but he did say at career day to a parent who came in who was a lawyer. Uh, the parent asked, um, do, do you, "Does anyone know what lawyers do, or does anyone know a lawyer?" And my son raised his hand and said, "My mom's a lawyer." And she said, "Do you know what kind?" And he said, "She gets women out of jail because for having babies." And I thought that was like a really, (laughs) that was sort of a better way to describe it than I think I ever could. And I was so incredibly proud. Um, So I think he gets it um, on some level. Uh, My five-year-old, not quite there yet, but um, she knows that I fight for moms and babies. Kids can really sum
0: stuff up, can't they? Yeah. What about you? What about your kids? Well, the youngest is is only a year and a half, right. so she doesn't know what's going on. But, um, but I have a seven-year-old, and I think i's, I've been talking to them about my work since they were about five. And I just kind of tried to explain it in the most basic kind of step-by-step terms as I could. Like, so, you know, like, mommy and mommy's had, you know, three pregnancies, including a miscarriage, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, like... I got really sick during all those pregnancies, right? And it was really hard on, uh, you know, on my body, right? And like kind of just walking them through, like, pregnancy is not a walk in the park for many of us. um, it's, And including those of us who really, really wanted those pregnancies.
1: This is such a complex thing to explain. And um, I, I have a five-year-old to kind of understand that phase where they're like, but why? But, mm-hmm. but how? But why? Right. Well, yep. does this, and that you see them in real time, I mean, you're explaining stuff that is in murky moral waters for a lot of people, right? I mean, Amanda, is it you who had grown up in a religious household? Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, and so I, you know, I come to this work from a very different, I think, perspective than most most attorneys in this movement. Um, my, uh, my dad's an evangelical minister, and I grew up as a child, identifying very strongly as pro-life. Um, I have memories of decorating signs for pro-life rallies as a kid. Um, and so, you know, I, I do come to this work from uh, a perspective of someone who um, really went through a transformation to um, to get to where I'm at. Um, right. and, and, and heard a
1: very different message from a parent about mm-hmm. what's going on.
0: Exactly. And, um, and part of that informs the way I talk to my child about my work, um, because I don't want to, um, I I don't want to sort of force any moral beliefs or any, um, you know, convictions like that on them. But at the same time, I have those, I have these moral beliefs and these convictions. And so um, what I've mostly, how I've mostly tried to frame it is, Nobody else should get to decide for someone else. Um, you know, every, and you know, I also, in addition to talking about how difficult pregnancy is on, on someone, I talk about how hard babies are, right? And after um their their little sister was born, I was like, you know, you you see how much B cries, right? You see how how hard it is on us, how little sleep we get. Does it make sense to you that somebody would get to decide for them that they had to have this baby?
1: There is someone listening to this right now who is appalled that you're saying that.
0: Yeah. I believe that.
4: But that's real. And people have lives to live and decisions to make. Uh, and that's real for a lot of people, too. I, Audie, I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say, there's someone listening to this thinking, okay, now I have a way in to talk to my child about abortion. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my next question, yeah. right?
1: There's lots of people who see this news story in the paper and this is the one where, you know, my kid, they point to the paper and they say, "Well, what's that?" And you're like, "Oh, some people are mad at each other." You say some <laughs> very generic not great parent thing. Um that's me, I'm raising my hand. And you guys are saying like, "Yeah, you're there's a way to engage in this conversation."
4: Yeah. Um I went through IVF, so my child only only understands that babies are born in a or are, are created in a lab. Um, so that's a unique experience or a yes, unique understanding. Another another appalled listener right. just heard that. <laughs> and you know, I jokingly would say loophole: I, we never have to have the talk about sex because he understands there's seed and egg and a warm belly, and sometimes you need a doctor to help make all that happen, and that's it. Um, but. Um, when, I, when the Dobbs decision happened and I was, you know, visibly upset for days, um, we talked about it and and the idea that some people are pregnant and don't want to be. And he could not grapple with that because the amount of things that we had to do to become pregnant, he's like, why would you go through all of that and then not want to be pregnant? He just didn't, you know, so that connection was harder for him to understand. But the idea that you should be able to have control over your own body, I think, really resonated with him.
0: Well, kids don't like to be told what to
4: do right, too right? right
0: and so that you know I, I i kind of um i think that's an important you know centering idea um that you know at the end of the day who gets to decide right what you do with your body um and i think i think that it, it is it is challenging when you're like they're like wait but d- didn't you really want me and it's like yes that's the point right every pregnancy should be it should be wanted. It should be um, something that somebody has the resources for.
1: Any any parting thoughts you have for each other about, I don't know, I guess keeping your, your spirits up as you go forward?
4: This is hard work, and we work in community with a lot of other incredible people. And I feel in, very privileged to be able to work with folks like Amanda, work with our allies and in coalition and in really hostile places and to work with the clients that we have. Our clients are, they're going through it and they're not getting a lot of support often locally. We do this for them and they are our inspiration and uh, they are resilient when they shouldn't have to be, but they are. And um, what powers us is seeing them reunited with their families and back in their communities and um, being able to
0: make them understand that they did not do anything wrong. It is an absolute privilege to be able to do this work. I wish I didn't have job security, but, you know, it looks like we're going to have some job security for the next couple of decades. Um, But... You know, it is, um, it's an honor, just as Dana said, to, um, to be able to, to represent the clients we do and to, to fight for the rights of, of their patients and the people that they serve.
1: That was Amanda Allen, Senior Counsel and Director of The Lawyering Project, and Dana Sussman, Acting Executive Director of Pregnancy Justice. And that's it for this episode of The Assignment. If you've got a new assignment for us, give us a call. Our number is 202-854-8802. We might use your voicemail in a future episode of our show. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Carla Javier and Lori Gallaretta. Our producers are Madeline Thompson, Jennifer Lye, and Dan Bloom. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Mixing this week by technical director Dan DeZula. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and of course, special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish, and thank you for listening.